0: You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we're talking about science, pseudoscience, and race.
1: Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at L-U-E-E podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at L-U-E-E podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog.
0: My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Laura Creek-Newman. Hi there. Guys, I'm still getting email from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. (laughs) (laughs) And you can never opt out. So today on Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, we're going to tackle some tough topics. We're going to discuss science's rocky relationship with racial and ethnic issues, and some of the ways that the trappings of science are used to justify racism. We're not going to talk in depth about the racism that some people of color are subjected to when working in the sciences, which is a very real problem. There is some evidence to suggest that black researchers are less likely to get NIH funding than white researchers, for example, although a more recent analysis has disputed these findings. We'll link to a discussion of that in the show notes. But our primary focus on this episode will be to discuss what science can meaningfully say about race, and to talk about some racist pseudosciences that have masqueraded as science, both historically and more recently. Many of our stereotypes and prejudices are rooted in racist ideas that were in the past justified by pseudoscience. The idea that black men are more aggressive and less intelligent than white men is rooted in the pseudoscientific idea that people of color are somehow less human, more animalistic than Caucasians. And these ideas sometimes manifest in ways that may be harder for us to see, like the way people of color can be seen as exotic and hypersexualized, often with an emphasis on the size of certain parts of their anatomy. In academia and in popular culture, we see the trappings of science being used to reinforce tribal ideas of our own superiority and to distance ourselves from the other. We can see this happening in our own communities, too. Tech culture suffers from it. Later on I'll be talking about software developer Curtis Yarvin. And we can also see it in the atheist community. In the show notes, I'll link to a couple of articles by Martin Hughes over at Pathios uh, detailing statements made recently by T.J. Kirk, the amazing atheist. Mm -hmm. Comments that Hughes shows are, quote, proudly, ignorantly racist. It's important that we speak up about these problems. To quote Lieutenant General David Morrison, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. Before we get into the topics we're going to cover today, we should address the elephant in the room man, I really wanted to come up with a white elephant joke, uh, but it just didn't come together.
2: We could give it back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) While our panel benefits from some amount of diversity in the form of gender, sexual orientation, and socioeconomic background, we're all white. Among other things, this means that our perspectives on these issues will probably differ from the opinions of people who have been more directly affected by them, so please bear that in mind. We encourage our listeners to seek out a diversity of opinions on these topics. And we put a lot of work into this show, but we're not always going to get things right. While we always welcome listener feedback, for this episode more than most, I'd like to encourage our listeners to reach out with disagreements, clarifications, or opinions of their own. So, with all that in mind, let's, uh, let's open the can of worms. Ashlyn, is race a biological concept or a cultural construct?
1: Ooh, well, it depends where in history we are. So people have always categorized themselves as this is my group of people and this is another group of people. We've always taken note of the differences and similarities between our groups and other groups. Uh, but those differences and similarities haven't always been something that people would say, well this is something that is natural, it is clearly defined, and it's always going to be that way. Um, This group is always going to be separate from that group and there's no way to change that. The rise of sort of modern classifications of race actually happened in the United States, surprise surprise, (laughs) 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 and was largely motivated by the African slave trade. When the colonies were first starting to plant uh, tobacco and other crops, it was under a system where people would often get uh, other Europeans to come over and they would be given free passage across the ocean. You would be put up, you'd get food and uh, your place on the farm, and then you would have to work it off. And this was an indentured servitude. Right. Eventually, you could work off your passage across the ocean if certain other conditions were met. But it was really difficult to tell... Which of the people on a farm were indentured servants and which were the owners? Because most of the people were of the same sort of uh, origins and they were mostly European. Uh, I was actually just listening to a really interesting uh, Stuff You Missed in History podcast. And they were talking about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. And they sort of addressed some of this, how, how when it first started it was very white, all of these plantations. And this was a problem. If uh, a white man escaped from his indentured servitude and ran off, he could very easily assimilate into another community and wouldn't be able to be found out. So the solution to this was to start kidnapping and enslaving black people. It was very important uh, for the purposes of slavery that we could clearly tell which people were, you know, the higher-ranked people and which were less. And there had to be a reason that they were allowed to be owned and couldn't um, work their way out of the indentured servitude. So people started coming up with all of these reasons, going back all the way till classical times to find reasons why they should be uh, considered lesser people. And they were all crap.
2: Oh, of course. Obviously. Thank you for the caveat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so these things were sort of cemented into the way that the United States worked. Because it was so important for these distinctions to be maintained, people go to pretty much any lengths to convince themselves and to convince others that these distinctions were important.
0: Well, when you have a vested interest in believing something, you're much more likely to maintain that belief.
1: Absolutely. Mostly what I wanted to talk about, though, was some of the evidence that we have that race is... A cultural construct and not something genetic. Um, so part of my university training was in anthropology and in specifically uh, forensic anthropology. And some of the really cool stuff that we looked at was uh, measurements of bones and measurements of different... Uh, features on, for example, the skull or the pelvis. And you can get some information from those things, and these are the sorts of things that people will use when uh, they're doing the reconstructions. And so if we, especially if we have a skull that is several hundred years old, we don't have a lot of clues as to what sorts of cultural background the person might have had. And so you can take measurements Some of the more common ones are things like the spacing of the eyes, uh, the distance between uh, the nasal bones, the distance between the occipital bun, the size of the occipital bun. Uh, And we can look at all of these measurements and we can come to usually a pretty decent guess about what sort of skin color the person might have. But when you look at all of the measurements individually, you can see that the I guess the curves, the overlap, there is so much more um, difference.
0: There's more difference within groups than between groups?
1: That is part of what I'm saying. Um, But I'm also... So if you only take one feature and you try and base your entire guess off of that one feature... Um, you're way more likely to be wrong than you are to be right. The only way that we can make a good guess is if we take a lot of those features together.
2: Mm, okay.
0: So all of those features have a very low specificity.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: the math word that I was looking yeah. for. <laughs> yeah, so you can increase your, your, your probability of a, of a hit by introducing those additional variables.
1: Yeah, and an important thing to think about as well is that these are all phenotypic expressions of a genotype. And so a genotype is what your actual genes say about you, and your phenotype is how those are expressed in your body. Um, So Jem is phenotypically a redhead and his genes probably reflect that. And a red chin. <laughs> and a red yeah. chin, which for is, now. it's about to go away. <laughs> Whereas Lauren, right now, has red hair, but her genotype will tell you that she has dyed it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: there are a lot more similarities than differences between the so-called races, um, I guess is, is the, the overarching point. Even if we're looking at very specific things that are uh, so-called markers for certain areas. Um, so things like shovel-shaped incisors are are very distinctive in uh, certain Asian populations. But especially with the, the growth of like global travel and everything, there's so much mixing of the different um, sorts of areas that never would have happened before that I, I anticipate that In not too many more years, a lot of those things will be very difficult to figure out if you only have a skeleton. Um, So I wanted to read an interesting passage from Jonathan Marks. It says, By the 1970s, it had become clear that, one, most human differences were cultural, two, what was not cultural was principally polymorphic. That is to say, found in diverse groups of people at different frequencies. And three, what was not cultural or polymorphic was principally clinal. That is to say, gradually variable over geography. And four, what was left, the component of human diversity that was not cultural, polymorphic, or clinal, was very small. A consensus consequently developed among anthropologists and geneticists that race, as the previous generation had known it, as largely discrete, geographically distinct gene pools, did not exist. And so, to sort of expand upon that, any sort of trait that is thought to be sort of a marker for one uh, group of people and not another, generally you're wrong. (laughs) It's going to appear in a lot of different groups. If it doesn't appear... Very, in a very widespread way, then it'll often be a sort of marker of, for example, how near or far your ancestors adapted to be um, near the equator. So mm, That
3: makes a lot of sense. Then, yeah. You
1: need more vitamin D or less vitamin
2: D. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. So the biggest thing that we're talking about today is based upon skin colors, how a lot of people have been categorized, as opposed to redheads versus brunettes hasn't been as big a deal.
2: <laughs> well... <laughs>
1: So the closer you are to the equator, obviously the more damage from the sun you're going to have gotten over the course of a lifetime. And while uh, things like skin cancer don't actually develop until you're pretty much done having children um, in most cases, so it's not as big of a a push, the radiation can actually have an effect on the folate cycle. And so Mm. people who were exposed to more sun would have a higher chance of birth defects. And so people who lived closer to the equator, it was uh, a bigger advantage to develop darker skin so that that would not have as big an effect. And as we were saying, the further away you are from the equator, the more vitamin D you need. And so it's more advantageous to be pale, pale, pale like everybody on this panel. (laughs) (laughs) And so when we look at all of those factors together, the fact that there really is no one defining thing that you can say, you know, here's the cutoff point, this is one race and this is another race. It really is just a giant wheel of spectrum. Race is something we've totally made up. Just like, uh, it was a really good analogy I think I read in an article that Jem linked me about this issue that we'll link to in the show notes, where it said race is made up and it it has an effect on our lives, but just like Wednesday is made up and has an effect on our lives, <laughs> you know, so is race. It's, it's something we made up, and now we're kind of, we just deal with it.
0: <laughs> All right, right,
1: so we solved that. Good show, everyone. <laughs> I, I, I love the idea that, you know, Wednesday is something we just made up. Right. It, it's true, yeah. but you don't
2: think about it, that way. But well, that it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. it still yeah. exists, but we made it up. Yeah. <laughs> we put importance on Wednesday. <laughs> Because it's hump day.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, when people are exposed to this idea that race is um, uh, that race is a cultural construct, a lot of times that can reinforce ideas of, well, we're all just one human family, therefore we solved it, guys.
2: <laughs> it's all good.
0: Uh, and it can reinforce this idea of colorblindness. Uh, and I thought that P.Z. Myers, uh, evolutionary biologist and past guest on this show, phrased it really well. He said, "...a race is a mishmash of categories that does not correspond at all well to any kind of clade. The concept emphasizes superficial differences as markers for significant cultural and personal differences, and fails. But I can think of reasons knowledge about those pattern differences between people could be beneficial, because sociological race is real." These racial distinctions that people make have caused great injustices over time. In fact, some of the greatest atrocities ever. The American Indian genocide, the Jewish Holocaust, centuries of black slavery. You will not make them disappear by pointing out the biological unity of the human species. And I think that you would do great harm by trying to pretend those weren't acts targeting racial groups and denying people recognition of their history.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting when you talk to a lot of people who... Would maybe categorize themselves as you know the social justice warrior type. Um, (laughs) You'll hear that a lot of them went through a phase. A lot of white social justice warriors will have gone through a phase where um, they were very all about the, you know, I don't see race, and we're just we're all one people, and you know, if we if we just ignore race entirely, then that'll be the best way to you know grow and move forward into society
0: and.
2: I was 16 when that happened for me, (laughs) and I'm looking back at some of the conversations I had, Mm -hmm. and
0: cringing. Oh, I wish I had been that young. (laughs) We all have our moments. Okay, well, thanks for that uh, wonderful primer, Ashlyn, on race as a cultural construct. Lauren, do you want to tell us all about the wonderful science that is phrenology? Well, no, Jim, but I'll tell you about the pseudoscience. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I guess that'll have to do.
2: So I'm here as the comic relief. (laughs) Phrenology, as seen on The Simpsons, is when basically you are measuring different parts of the brain to see the different types of mental faculties and smartness of someone. Uh, Phrenology is from the Greek, meaning mind, so phren, and logos, meaning knowledge. Mm -hmm. So it's literally mind knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a solid concept to me. But this is the head bump thing, right? It's the head bump thing! Yay! Head bumps!
0: I've got lots of those. Does that
2: make you more smart or less smart?
0: Depends I, where they are. I was yeah. dropped a lot as a child.
2: <laughs> so phrenology is a pseudomedicine primarily focused on measurements of the human skull, the head bumps, and it's based on the concept that the brain is the organ of the mind, and certain brain areas have localized specific functions or modules. There are 27 different parts of your human mind. There are 19 in lower animals. I agree with the
0: very beginning of that statement, (laughs) and then it went rapidly downhill. Yeah. So it was
2: developed by German physician Franz Joseph Gall in 1796, and it was very popular in the 19th century, especially from about 1810 until 1840, and Queen Victoria had all of her children's heads analyzed.
3: As you would, right? Yeah.
2: Well, the British center for it was in Edinburgh. So she had to go up to Scotland to have her children. Ooh. Well, I'm sure they came down to the palace. <laughs> yeah. So it's now regarded as obsolete, obviously. And it was associated with moral philosophy and influence in 19th century psychiatry. So we all know how that oh, turned out. a bastion
0: of good scientific investigation.
2: Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of different methods... Do we want to hear the 27 different parts of the brain?
0: Yes, actually. I I would love to hear the 27 different parts of the brain.
2: Okay, one second. Let me find that picture again. So we are starting from the front. In between your eyes is the duality. So that's where you can, your foresight and your thought. By your eyes, you have size and form. And weight and color, and underneath your eyes, is where you store your language
1: thoughts. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Actually, wait, I have a question before we go any further. Yeah? Was this, like, relatively standardized, or did each quack just make up their own map?
0: No, there are charts. Because it was a single origin, it probably didn't uh, proliferate as as much as, say, reflexology. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's what I was thinking of, because all of the different, like, foot charts you see, they all
2: have different stuff (laughs) described with each toe, so... Each of the charts that I'm looking at, this is an 1883 chart I'm looking at, but they were very standardized. Okay. So we've got locality above weight. So Ashlyn, you don't have that one. That one's very small in you. We would have to measure it, so you don't know where you are. Behind that, we have time and tune. Jen's giving me a confused look. Lauren is saying that I have a terrible sense of direction. No. <laughs> <laughs> and time, which is right next to it. It's true. It's but that true. probably just means that your, the tune section of your brain is much larger. See, we're looking at it here. There's a bunch of pretty little pictures. <laughs> and underneath tune, we have order and calculation. I wonder if I have an indent on calculation. Because
1: bigger <laughs> bumps is better, right? That means bigger bumps are better.
2: Yeah. Okay. Mm. So going back to the front above the duality, you have memory which includes history. And above that one, we have comparison and human nature. Is that a euphemism for sex? Are you really good at sex if you have a big bump there? No, that's at the back of the brain. We're getting there. We're getting
1: to the sex (laughs) organs. Hold your horses, Ashley. I'm impatient for the sex.
2: (laughs) Uh, We have causality and mirthfulness. Ooh. Yes. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. Constructiveness. Ideality, So we're like somehow in the middle of the brain. I don't know how we are actually measuring back inside like the skull. Is it bands
3: across the brain or is it like clumps? Little clumps. Around? Little okay. clumps. Yeah. Okay.
2: Uh, benevolence is about. Almost we recommend like you put one of these. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll link this. Yeah, we'll put
0: a link in the show notes.
2: There's suavity. You can be suave. <laughs> there's imitation. Spirituality is actually just kind of little, but it's right beside hope.
0: Aww. Aww.
2: And they're both underneath veneration and firmness, and conscientiousness, <laughs> sublimity, acquisitiveness. That's a big one.
0: Well, I can imagine it would be.
2: So, like yeah, greed? Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> making sure.
2: So, destructiveness is wrapped around your ear. And right above that is secretiveness and cautionness. <laughs> they're just making up words <laughs> now. <laughs> behind it, there is combativeness, and vidativeness is behind the ear. I have no
0: idea what that means. Maybe it means you're vital? I guess it means... Listeners, please s- tell us. Strength of uh, life force? Ooh, it's your ooh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can make up better words. Underneath that, you have your animativeness. And right above here, Ashlyn, you know, I'm touching the back, the nape of my neck, sort of just above it. That's where you find conjugal love. Ooh. <laughs> and... <laughs> the picture for the conjugal love node... Is a couple standing in front of what looks to be a priest. <laughs> I am not kidding you. Whatever floats your boat. And beside that, right at the back, philoprogenitiveness. It's your love of your children. And above that is inhibitiveness. Beside that is friendship, which is right above conjugal love. Above that is continuity. And then self esteem, approbativeness, and we're right back around. So yeah. It's a lot of things you can tell by feeling somebody's head. Yep. 27 things. So, was
0: the idea that, like, these nodules on the brain, like, the brain's pretty squishy, right? Yeah. Like, is it like mm-hmm. pushing parts out of your skull? It's and... just
2: growing different sizes, and if you can feel them and how they connect but, together, like how
0: could you possibly tell the structure of the brain from the structure of the skull? It's not real, Jim. Uh, well, I know, <laughs> but I, you know, I just want some internal consistency. What's their, their what's, the, what's their story for that?
3: Jim, this is before they knew nor cared. <laughs> yeah, I don't know.
1: There's a lot of like anatomy textbooks. Yeah, they did. Already by they had a, they had ripped people open, and so you should be able to tell that you know the bumps on the brain don't actually correspond to anything.
0: I'm also curious, like, this is very specific. Yeah. What justification did he provide for those being the locations? Even if we admit, yeah, there are 23 nodules or whatever, how do you know which is which? Because he said so
2: and he invented it. Okay.
0: <laughs> That's fair.
2: It is different. It's secret. Yeah. This focuses on personality and character, and it's distinct from craniometry, which is the skull size, weight, and shape. It's different also from physiognomy, which is the study of the facial features, like the you've got the low sloping forehead of the carny folk. <laughs> Studying this has just been Simpsons quotes. <laughs> Simpsons quotes and Simpsons quotes. <laughs> but this is the one that uses the caliper, so you would measure the different parts and say, oh, your conscientiousness is big today. You're a very conscientious <laughs> person. <laughs> Phrenology did have a bit of an uptick in America in the early 20th century, But Mm -hmm. it was pretty much disproved by the forties, and it's fallen out of favor, except as a joke. (laughs) But what about rumpology?
0: The uh, form of divination practiced by Sylvester Stallone's uh, mother. Yeah, Jackie Stallone. Jackie Stallone.
3: Is she the only person who does that? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay.
0: (laughs) So what does this have to do with race?
2: From the time and place it was invented, it was very much of a um, white people are superior because the parts of our brains are the correct sizes.
3: Right. We are the norm, right? Yeah.
2: If somebody's forehead was wider, then they were out of whack. Exactly. Right.
1: Well, I know we just went through all of the different parts, but were there some parts that were considered, like, bad if you had a bump there? Because most of those sounded like they were pretty positive things.
0: It kind of reminded me of astrology in that way, whereas, like, anything where you have a bump, Mm -hmm. you're like, it's a good thing. But there was, like, acquisitiveness. Right, that was yeah. a 3D and form, there was but... um, combativeness
2: mm-hmm. Combativeness okay. and impulsiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Phrenology
0: was used as justification uh, for, you know, the, the greatness of the European races. Yeah, uh,
2: right. It was the norm, like the max factor, perfect face.
0: Yeah, they used phrenological studies to rank the skulls of the various races into yeah. into greater or lesser intelligence and like that. Hardly the first nor the last time that uh, races were ranked by intelligence, which we will get into.
2: If your conjugal love node, like if your occipital bun was bigger, then, I mean, you're really into the conjugal love, and that's, you know, taking away from from your godliness and stuff. And your friendship. Mm, Yeah. That's right above
3: it, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're probably more likely to be a deviant, is
2: what they're saying. Although friendship is a couple of gals making out
0: (laughs) on this chart. Pillow friends. Mm
2: hmm. Right oh, yeah. oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so that's a primer on phrenology. It was absurd, written by people who were absurd, to make fun of other people so they could keep them down.
0: Yep. Once you have a reason to believe something, you're just going to keep believing it. You're not going to change your mind. So,
1: Especially if somebody tries to convince you otherwise.
0: Yeah. To quote John Galbraith, faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving that there is no need to do so, <laughs> almost everyone gets busy with the proof. Mm-hmm. So Laura, tell us about <laughs> eugenics.
3: So before I get into it, I just wanted to ask the rest of the panel, what do we think of when we hear the word eugenics? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Horrible Nazi experiments.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Nazis!
1: <laughs> I actually have a bit of a different answer, because I've been thinking about it more lately. Because some of the bloggers I follow have been making a concerted effort to point out things that are very eugenicsy that we don't really think about a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So things like saying uh, there should be a test before you reproduce um, right. to make sure that, you know, people who are of a lower intelligence can't have children. Um, mm-hmm. Even things like the Darwin Award, like it has very tones of eugenics and is kind yeah, of crappy. Yeah, I was rereading
0: that a little bit the other day and felt a little skeevy. With the Darwin Awards, it is kind of an endorsement uh, of the idea that evolution by natural selection is a force for good in Mm -hmm. some sense. And even Dawkins, and Lord knows I have my disagreements with Dawkins, he has stated that he is an ardent Darwinian, but that is a description of the universe. It is not prescriptivist. Mm -hmm. And he believes, as I think we all should, that we should work toward a universe that is very undarwinian. We should help people who are in need rather than leaving them to suffer and die, right?
1: Natural selection is sort of just a neutral thing. Yeah. And it's it's not and this was something that we were schooled on in our, you know, first-year anthropology classes that evolution is not guiding toward anything. Yeah. It's not uh, a, a ladder that goes from microbe to human.
3: Right. Absolutely. It's not a stratification in value of worth or anything like that. It is just a description of what has happened and what may continue to happen as time goes on. Oh, goodness.
2: If human was the pinnacle. (laughs) (laughs) I know. You would be amazed how many people think that, though. I know.
3: (laughs) Well, because cars and iPhones, guys, that makes us the best, right? Also global warming and (laughs) self-destruction. Yay. So, The eugenics movement started right after Darwin published Origin of Species, and interestingly enough, the modern uh, version of eugenics that we're most familiar with, or that I'm going to talk about today at least, was uh, really developed and popularized by Darwin's cousin, of all people. His name was...
0: Jim Darwin. (laughs) Bill Darwin.
3: Francis Galton.
0: Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah.
3: So he was a half-cousin, so... That's what it says. Anyway, it was developed in the in the late 19th century after Francis Galton read The Origin of Species and learned about natural selection. And sort of like we were just talking about, took it that step further and said, well, what if we could select for positive traits and deselect for negative traits? Wouldn't that be better? Yeah. Right? Isn't that what we should be doing? And so that's basically what eugenics is. And I think that's such a
1: natural response when you hear about that, right? Right. It's putting it into practice that is
3: horrible and bad. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll get into that. So a definition of eugenics at the time that the idea was developed is "...the science which deals with all influences that improve the inborn qualities of a race, also with those that develop them to the utmost advantage."
2: Ooh, that sounds all sorts of scary right off the bat.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And there's also notes in here that Francis Galton, when he thought of eugenics and improving the the species, it does say race here. It's not always clear, but I mean, he was a white guy from Britain in the 19th century. So we're talking about wealthy white people, right? It is also noted that he wasn't actually looking at the average person as what humans would be. He was looking for, well, what is the best? And that is what we should be striving for. So geniuses and inventors and the top people in society and that, and that's what we should be trying to make out of our entire society. The Ubermensch? Something like that. It's a dangerous place to start. Yeah. <laughs> right. So he already had these extra high expectations that we should, we should in air quotations, be, be working towards. So, like I said, it started in the late 19th century. There's some ideas that there were some eugenic ideas in uh, ancient civilizations and societies mm-hmm. as well, but it was never a formalized ideological process or, or grouping that the way that it became in the late 19th century. So it really took off in Europe in the late 1870s. Uh, From there, it's gained significant popularity throughout Britain, particularly, and in some other parts of Western Europe. And then it came over to the U.S. in the early 20th century. So as early as uh, 1907, there were states in the U.S. that were adopting laws based on the eugenics ideas. Yep. It reached its highest popularity in the twenties and thirties, and then uh, had a significant decrease in popularity post World War II. Funny I that. Why. Amazingly, however, some policies and programs remained in effect until the sixties and seventies, and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. The idea behind eugenics is that in humanity there are good traits and there are poor traits. So eugenics is a science and a group of policies that would encourage increased uh, reproduction or fertility in fit people, so those people possessing these good traits, and decreasing fertility or reproduction in unfit people, so people who have these poor traits. And there's also an emphasis here that the duty of each individual is to the state first over themselves and their sense of individuality, and this... Uh, So this is what encouraged some of the the nationally or or state-sponsored policies that happened as a result of this thought process.
1: Very different from what we would accept today.
3: Right. And I mean, in some parts of the world, that is still the way that societal life is seen to to greater or lesser extents. So in Canada, in our part of Canada here from our cultural background... We're very much individualistic first, and we very much prize the rights of the individual before the rights of the society, but that's not necessarily the case everywhere, even in present day, but it differs. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out, because some groups are different. So it came about after the origin of species, where we learned about natural selection, things like that. Okay, so we want to select for good traits, deselect for bad traits. It was also helped along by the rediscovery of Mendelian genetics at this Mm -hmm. point, so... Mendel, of course, gave us our first kind of glimpse on how traits were passed on from generation to generation, and how there were dominant traits and recessive traits, and how the combination of those things could express themselves in the offspring.
1: He was a dirty, rotten cheater. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Punnett squares are fun, though. Well, he was a genius who figured out how a lot of genetics works, but he also cooked his data. He didn't actually get the data that proved his theories. Like if you look look back at, at all his um his actual workbooks, he decided what his outcomes were gonna be and then he he tweaked Just numbers. made it happen. Yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, we don't turn out see. to be
3: totally yeah. right. Right. Good,
0: good thing we don't see that in modern science ever.
3: <laughs> right, exactly. And so his most famous studies, the ones that were rediscovered at this time, this was with the, the pea plants and the seed coat colors. So What this came to for people who were into this whole eugenics movement was the idea that like begets like, and this is a really common thing. So if the parent is this way, the child or offspring will be that way. Um, But what a lot of these proponents didn't understand was that not all traits follow the sequence of inheritance. Um, It's much more complex than that. There's many environmental influences that determine whether traits are expressed or not or how they're expressed in different ways. And on the same lines as what you were talking about, Ashlyn, as much as they had access to this groundbreaking study by Mendel, they didn't see all the other work that he had done that proved that not all these traits went that way. So they only really focused, and they really, really latched onto this idea that, well, if a parent is this way, the offspring will be this yeah, way. they and treated it as
1: if every trait only had one allele involved with it, whereas most genes are interplays between a lot of genes. Absolutely. So all of the different combinations that you can get, even from just two parents, is very large.
3: Absolutely. Exactly. And they also conveniently ignored the fact that it had been proven, even at that time, by other Mendelian geneticists, that... There were mutations and traits that could develop on their own for so again that that environmental influence there they just ignored that. They just assumed that if a parent has a trait, the child will have that trait, and thus, if it is a good trait, we want it, and if it 's not good, we don 't want it
1: and not even physical stuff but mental stuff as well that exactly often has nothing to do with genetics
3: so and this is the thing that makes eugenics such a lovely topic to talk about. Because positive traits were things like genius and, and kindness and all these lovely things that we would all like to be, right? We all want to be kind and loving and all that kind of stuff. But negative traits that were assumed to be genetically inherited were things like pauperism, criminality, epilepsy, mental illness, psychosis, alcoholism, promiscuity, immorality, my favorite, feeble-mindedness. Um, and there were some other things, too, that, like, blindness, deafness, things like that, other physical disabilities, or things that could be considered physical disabilities, um, may or may not have made that list as well.
0: Oh, we know for certain that they did. Oh, <laughs> they
3: did, they did. <laughs>
0: With all these physical disabilities you're you're listing, that sounds almost more like Lamarckianism or Lysenkoism than... Mm. Uh, I don't know uh, what those things are. Uh, I've heard those words. It's right. uh, the inheritance of acquired traits. Yeah.
1: Right. So, like, right. the idea that a giraffe's neck got longer because they were stretching for the leaves And right. every subsequent generation yep. had a longer neck because of it
3: Yeah, so there was definitely some of it And we do know that some of these things, like some types of mental health issues Or sometimes deafness and blindness And that can be genetically inherited through families But things like pauperism and criminality and immorality and feeble-mindedness this These don't make any sense in well, I- terms of their actual genetic inheritability
1: We talk about this as if it's all in the past, but there are still a lot of people who wouldn't ever consider getting an abortion for a child that was wanted, except if it had, you know, Down syndrome or something. And then, you know, well, you know, that's a little bit more acceptable. And and that's totally a
3: eugenicist mindset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point, but not either like the classical turn of the 20th century eugenics. That's often referred to as sort of new eugenics or like modern day eugenics, mm-hmm and i'll touch on that briefly at the end we'll come back around okay Another thing with these negative traits is that they were categorically dismissed that they were at all affected by social class, lack of resources, poverty, Mm -hmm. any of the other social issues. And they used science, (laughs) lovely science, you know, the quotation mark kind. Yeah,
0: those are the most uh, aggressive air quotes (laughs) I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, that was a little
2: scary. (laughs) Uh,
3: To back this up. And the kind of science that they often used as proof that it was, in fact, these negative traits were genetically inherited... Were case studies of families over several generations. Hmm. So one really well-known case study was of the Kallikak family, and that's actually a, a pseudonym for the family. It was, but it was done by psychologist and eugenicist Henry H. Goddard. So what it was is that there was a. It started with a, a single male progenitor. And the family branched off into two different sections. This uh, Mr. Goddard followed this family on both sides to see what the traits were. And so what happened is with this progenitor, he was married. He went off to fight in the Civil War on his way back. He had a dalliance with a feeble-minded girl. And after that, he repented and went back to his Quaker wife and had a lovely, wealthy family all down the line this this feeble-minded girl apparently had a child who then had children who had children and apparently on that side of the family from the feeble-mindedness all of them were feeble-minded and they were they lived in poverty and social ills and immoral and all of these kinds of things so because there was this single progenitor but there was this feeble-mindedness that had worked its way into the tree. That is what transferred all the way down. So honestly, these were in textbooks for psychology, this this case study in the 1950s mm-hmm. even.
1: It had nothing to do with the different socioeconomic Right, it had nothing to us. do
3: with the fact that a wealthy man uh, impregnated probably a young and vulnerable, probably not very wealthy young woman and left her to raise a child and yeah. then she then had to deal with all of those issues.
0: Goodness knows she wouldn't have been subject to any sort of discrimination or bias.
3: Right, absolutely. And there's actually, of course there is, but there's a lot of really great criticism of this work, as there should be, pointing out that There are all these social issues that could go along. One of the um, claims made with this Kalakak family is that even just the facial characteristics, they looked evil and ill, all the children on that side. And critics will look at that and say, actually, these are probably due to malnutrition and deficiency because of the poverty that they lived in and, and things like that. Like very reasonable kind of explanations for for things that are being pointed out as negative traits. But these kinds of case studies, this is one of the most well-known ones, but it is not the only one, and this is what was used as the scientific proof to further these eugenics ideas.
1: Well, and it's impressive
3: that they managed to follow them for several generations. Well, when (laughs) I say follow, so... It was good segue.
1: (laughs) I was genuinely impressed, like because normally you don't get long longitudinal studies even now.
3: Right. So there was this thing that was founded in the U.S. called the Eugenics Records Office that was meant to be a repository of family histories to see throughout the generations which families possessed these fit traits or were fit and which families were unfit.
2: A who's who of breeding stocks? Yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. A lot of the proponents of the eugenics movement were breeders, animal breeders, and they they transferred their philosophies and ideas on breeding techniques directly to humans. So that would make total sense. So yes, they kept these records. However, a lot of it was really hearsay. Obviously, with the more wealthy and well-connected people, you can find actual records and you can interview them and that... But especially on the unfit side, it's hearsay about where they've been, who they knew, what they did, all these kinds of things. So we all know that, uh, you know, if you don't like somebody, what do you start to say about them? Do you say nice things or do you say bad things about them? Right? It was rife with that. So whole families could be labeled as unfit because of various unfair reasons. So, yeah, when I say followed, (laughs) it's very sketchy at best.
1: The records thing, that actually makes me think of the census from about 10 years ago. I was filling it out for the family. I lived with my parents at the time, and at the very end of the census, they still have the question, it says something like, in 103 years, can we release this information for research purposes? And I just checked it, I said no problem. And my mom like freaked out. She's like, you know, you don't know what they're going to use that information for, you know, in a hundred years, who knows, you know, who's going to be in power and they could hunt down your grandchildren and, you know, put them in the work camps because you don't know whatever, whatever information that they might have that will impact your kids in a hundred years. And I was just like, wow, mom, that is some paranoia. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I guess there's a scenario in which that could happen.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Another little bit of sort of science that was used to to back up the eugenics movements. And that was that it was noted that in many of the institutions and in prisons, a lot of the inmates were related to each other. So they thought that then, well, there must be genetic links. There must be genetic reasons why they're all here, because why would they be here if there wasn't? Right, they really chalked everything up to genetics, basically. Well, it's yeah. like
1: they had a new toy, and that the phrase comes to mind that when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right, yeah. yeah.
3: There was also, it was often believed that unfit people had physical characteristics that would make it obvious to others, but there was some fear that there were unfit people that you couldn't distinguish physically. Oh no. And these were particularly called the feeble-minded, And so if just looking at them, you can't tell. So you might accidentally reproduce and have a Calicac family all over again. Oh, my goodness. And so that's where the idea of, well, we need tests to find out who is fit and unfit, just in case we can't tell by looking at them, came from.
2: Hey, I've taken some of those tests.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So those tests are largely IQ tests, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. So in practice, the implications of it are obviously that people who are vulnerable, people living with disabilities or mental illness, uh, minorities of any kind, recent immigrants, because especially at that time and in North America, where this idea really, really took off, there were a lot of immigrants at that time, particularly from Europe and Eastern Europe. There were a large number of immigrants. The poor, women and children These were the groups that were Disproportionately found to be unfit I know, we are all astonished By this conclusion there Right? And of course the positive and negative Traits were always determined by the ruling Groups, and so where eugenics took Off the most, the ruling groups were Wealthy, white Protestant for the most part, Mm -hmm. Catholics Were often discriminated against, particularly In Canada and in parts Mm -hmm. of the US And they were men (laughs) So wealthy white men and when they determined which traits were, were negative, things like feeble-mindedness were left intentionally vague. They never gave a good description yeah. because they needed it and they used it repeatedly as a catch-all term. It could be for someone who now might be considered to have like a learning disability or, or it could be for someone they just didn't like for any reason whatsoever. It could be someone who's never had access to education for any reason, and that would be a feeble-minded person.
2: Could be someone whose first language isn't English.
3: Exactly, yes. So especially with the large number of immigrants coming in, of course people were very concerned about this, and mm-hmm. still are sometimes, unfortunately, and and so they tended to think that, oh, well, these groups are, going, are unfit people because... As the immigrants come in, the crime and the poverty goes up in cities. Never stopping to think that perhaps there were other social issues that may be contributing to that. Couldn't they have just built a wall?
1: (laughs) Uh, How to play the trump card.
3: So the test's to figure out if people were fit or unfit. So a lot of people said, well, if, the, if immigrants are coming in, we should test them to see if they're fit or unfit. So they administered things like IQ tests and literacy tests. But of course, if we're coming from a different country and you haven't had a chance to master English, which is, was the dominant language in North America at the time, of course it's you're not going to score as well as somebody who's spoken English their entire lives yeah. or and read English and had the opportunity to learn to read English. Um, so, of course, these groups would score much, much lower. And, of course, they were living, uh, they were often segregated into lower-income housing and there were all sorts of social problems and not many social programs and poor sanitation. And so it just, really, they saw the people as the cause of the problem. Due to these unfit traits, they brought the unfit traits which caused the social problems.
2: Is eugenics one of the reasons we had the quotas for immigrants from different parts of the world?
3: Yes, absolutely. I didn't look that up for Canada, but the really well-documented one is the quota for the 1924 Immigration Act in the U.S., yeah. which significantly limited the the numbers of people who could come in from different parts of uh, the world. So they reduced it from 3% down to 2% of the population of that group that was already living in the U.S. at the time. So if there was 100,000 people of a group, then only 2% of that could come in each mm-hmm. year. And so for some groups, it was a little bit of a limitation for other groups, particularly like the Chinese and Japanese. They were all but banned from coming.
0: How did they define these groups?
3: What countries they came from. Okay. Yeah. they Because with immigration, you would come with papers. These are like documented immigrants at, at that time. And so you could tell what country you came from. So they would say no Chinese, no Japanese, only x number of Right. So what Swiss about, or whatever. Uh, but what about say
0: English immigrants?
3: Right. So for Western <laughs> Europeans, so for English and uh, Germany and France and things like that, there were unlimited numbers. They could come.
0: Probably not Italians though.
3: No, Italians? Only the
0: northwestern Europeans. Yes,
3: northwestern, particularly closer to the Nordic countries, yeah. the ones that looked most like the white people living. But over Irish here.
2: need not apply.
3: Oh, probably, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, though, a lot of Polish people were able to come because Germany occupied a lot of Poland at that point. And so those people fell under Germany. So those were some, one group of Eastern European people that actually were able to come. You know, you can get yourself down by the horrendousness of all of this. I choose to look at the absurdity of all of it and all of the mental gymnastics that are required to put these things into place. So to back up a little bit, as I mentioned at the top, there's a couple different parts of eugenics. So there's positive eugenics, which is encouraging reproduction and fertility in certain groups of certain traits, and then there's negative eugenics, which is... The discouragement of that. So the negative eugenics is really what took off, particularly in the U.S., and then transferred back to Europe um, in the 1930s and 40s. The main things that took off in the U.S. were institutionalization, segregation of different groups, and compulsory sterilization. Yep. 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 This is where it gets incredibly sad. So, often the sterilization programs started as consensual, but they usually loosened those restrictions on consent as time wore on, particularly during the 20s and 30s at the height of the eugenics movement. The vast majority of people who did undergo these, these sterilizations were under the care of the state in some way, shape, or form. There were some other programs... Care. Yes. <laughs> We have to remember the time frame here. Remember when this is a time frame when people living with uh, mental health issues were called inmates at institutions and the indigenous peoples of Canada who were sent to residential schools were also called inmates. So let's keep that in mind when we talk about care here. So with these restrictions came a lot of laws and uh, policies to restrict marriages for unfit People. For example, people with epilepsy weren't allowed to marry for many, many years in case they would pass on their epilepsy to their children. Uh, this also included the interracial marriage laws that were most famous in the southern United States, the anti-miscegenation laws. And, of course, as we've been talking about, the old stock white and Nordic races were seen as the superior and most desirable Groups And as sort of the bar to hit For all the other groups And they were seen as the epitome of fitness And typically people of Asian descent And Eastern Europeans were seen As the least desirable groups As we talked about
1: I like looking at those examples to see how like the definition of whiteness has changed. So yeah. you know now Irish people, of course, they're white, they're as white as I am. Yeah, <laughs> and some of them are whiter. Honey. <laughs> and exhibit Italian, A, yeah. Yeah. many <laughs>
3: Eastern Europeans now are you know would be considered very white. Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: Italian people, Greek people.
3: Yeah. Ukrainian people, Polish people. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm of Ukrainian heritage, and uh, the part I'm going to talk about next, my family, had they gone more out to Alberta rather than out here, might have been in a lot worse situation. Not that they had it great here either, but, you know, because they were Ukrainian, and they had it a lot better than a lot of other groups still do, unfortunately.
2: There's a new opera <laughs> written in Manitoba about the Ukrainians coming to Canada mm-hmm. and what they went through. I saw it when I saw Kamina Berena. It was oh, okay. act. It was very good.
3: Excellent. Excellent. I hear little Very bits and pieces. Yeah. My my grandmother immigrated when she was 6, I believe, from Ukraine to escape Stalinism there and they were not met with uh, warm open arms here too much. No. Okay, so I think we all understand eugenics now, right? The the most uh well-known form of Uh, eugenics is, of course, the Nazi experiments before and during World War II. They were horrendous, and they really took the idea of eugenics to the extreme, particularly of the euthanasia part of it. It's horrible. And, of course, after that, the idea of eugenics really lost favor in most of the rest of the world, or at least to the degree that it had been started to be practiced. So I talked a lot about the U.S., and I talked about Europe, where eugenics was born— but eugenics came to Canada, like I said. Eugenics it did. Eugenics, eugenics actually really took off in Canada and lasted quite a long while, particularly in Alberta, although also in BC there were eugenics laws on the books. There were policies, of course, and informal policies like discriminating against groups and segregation and things like that. But Alberta was actually the first place in the British Empire to enact eugenics laws in the form of sexual sterilization. That actually never really took place in the UK, but it took hold in the Americas. And that first law went into place in 1928, and it was only repealed in 1972. Yep. And it went through several amendments through that period. Uh, During that time, 4,725 people were approved for sterilization. I believe about 2,800 actual sterilizations were completed. So it was the idea of developing these laws in Canada started in uh, 1918 with the development of the Canadian National Committee on Mental Hygiene. And the committee's aim was to fight crime, prostitution, and unemployment, which it claimed was strongly tied to feeble-mindedness. Again, feeble-mindedness. It keeps coming back. And the support for this bill came from a 1919 mental health survey of inmates at mental health institutions in Alberta that, again, determined that mental illness was a social liability, and they wrote this survey to support the causal link of mental illness and immorality. Thus, these individuals should be segregated and also sterilized so that should they have any children, these children would not be social liabilities like themselves. In Alberta, one of the things that really fueled this desire for this law was high immigration, because again, the Canadian West was being populated at this time, there were land shares to be given out, and there were fears that uh, all the white folks would be outbred by foreigners. And also that this would mean that land would not be as available. So one of the big supporters of this was the farmers unions at the time, which also helped control the government at the time, because the farmers didn't want their land given or taken by somebody else. And then there's some other social issues with the the way that Alberta politics were at the time that encouraged that kind of, uh, or fanned the flames for this. So 1928, the law came into power. And what it did is it it encouraged sterilization of institutional inmates, but it required consent. However, there were provisions made that inmates of residential schools could be sterilized, not necessarily with consent. So in 1934, the law was amended and removed the need for consent for any person that was deemed mentally deficient or incapable of intelligent parenthood. And this was used in many cases, particularly for um, younger, poor, less educated women. Well, she couldn't possibly raise a child, so let's make sure she doesn't have any. And mentally deficient, again, was a broad reaching term like feeble mindedness. So you could label it on anybody for any reason, and particularly um, school children that were not listening and, and maybe not not destructive, but just being um, children, children <laughs> not the kind that sit down nicely and quietly, yeah. would often get this kind of labeling. And so they would enter the system pretty early. And that was because these were uh, incapable of intelligent parenthood. The, the people who were labeled with this were thought that they were at risk for passing on. And because the greater good is so much more important than individual rights and freedoms, mm-hmm. they really wanted to mitigate this risk. And of course, this gained popularity during the Depression as a cost savings measure because they were thinking, well, if these, these, all these deficient people are not reproducing, then we won't have to pay for them to be in institutions. This is a win-win. Right. Right. Uh, And then it was amended again in 1942 to include individuals with syphilis, Huntington's, and epilepsy, but these groups did require consent. In order to be sterilized, so typically what would happen is that these people were, of course, sterilizing against their will, and they would go in for a different medical procedure, and the sterilization would just happen at the same time. Jesus. But yeah, yep. A really well-known case in Alberta was in 1995. A woman sued the Alberta government for her forced sterilization because what happened is when she was a teenager, she was sent to one of these institutions, and uh, she had an appendectomy for whatever reason, and they just and they sterilized her at the same time. And she didn't find out until 20 years later when she couldn't understand why she was having infertility problems and uh, relationship problems because of it. So it wasn't until 1972 that this bill was repealed. So what's really interesting is 1942, World War II is going on. We are learning of the atrocities of the Nazi eugenics programs. And they are forging ahead with this program, trying to increase the numbers of these forced sterilizations. So that's a really interesting Horrible, but very interesting thought process to just charge ahead despite the rest of the world recoiling in horror at the atrocities across the ocean.
2: Imagine the mental gymnastics. Oh, oh, absolutely. We're not them. We're doing this. We're getting busy with the proof. Yeah. yeah. I was so busy with the proof. And something that
1: I maybe we could add into this discussion is that even now there's still occasionally news stories about how Um, especially aboriginal women are pressured into when having uh, a birth or another procedure like well we'll just go in and and tie your tubes as well you know yeah and they're either they're not really given the opportunity to say no or they're talked into it and and stuff like that so i mean it's not
3: something that's entirely in the past, even here in Manitoba. Oh, absolutely. And just the fact that certain groups of women would be offered this Mm -hmm. and other groups would not, that's a problem in itself, because it should be something that if you want to know more about, you can ask for it and you can have it if you want it. But you shouldn't be preferentially offering it to certain people because of your own thoughts and perceptions about their
0: lives. And we know that that can have a significant impact on outcomes. And that's the reason why, for example, in Britain, the BBC is not allowed to tell people, go out and vote. It's not allowed to encourage people to vote, which seems absurd. But if the BBC were to do that, they would be speaking to a very specific audience. Mm -hmm. uh, And that can, in fact, skew election results to a large degree. Similarly, if you're offering an option to only one group of people, you're going to skew the results. Absolutely.
3: Okay, so as you had mentioned, Ashlyn, you brought up the idea that some people wouldn't abort a wanted child unless it had certain uh, genetic disabilities or traits or something like that and that's something like I would said is sometimes thought of as the the new eugenics and it definitely does have a, a eugenics kind of feel to it and it is very common like I'm pregnant right now and one of the screens that we had was the triple screen and that screens for down syndrome and so we'd know with a high probability if we had a child with uh, down syndrome or not and we could have made that decision if we wanted to. In other groups, it's very common to uh, screen for uh, genetic diseases like cystic fibrosis or, um, in certain groups, Tay-Sachs disease, things like that, that are degenerative, known, fatal diseases. Mm -hmm. The parents, you can see if they're carriers or not for some of those, but uh, you still have to screen the fetus to see if it actually has it or not. And it's a really gray area there because it is a eugenics kind of idea. One of the big differences is often the consent Because today, with those kinds of pre-screenings, people are given informed consent. They're informed with the information. They should not be pressured into making a decision one way or the other. And we rely on their bodily autonomy to make those kinds of decisions. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying that the consent piece is the big part of it. Whereas previously, eugenics was seen as, if you carry this trait, or if we know that this is going to be, you don't have a choice, this is what is going to happen.
1: But I think where the eugenics thing comes into play as well is that a person with Down syndrome can live a full and healthy, happy life. And there's a lot of people who are choosing to not give them that opportunity because of a genetic anomaly.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I think that we're going to be seeing these discussions come up more and more and more as we start seeing... Better tests for things? Not just better tests for things, but I mean, currently, genetic engineering on humans is very tightly regulated in certain countries and internationally to some degree, but it is very easy to foresee uh, a situation in which you can have offshore clinics that are- Designing babies. Yeah, designing babies. Designer
3: babies, absolutely. And that's actually something that as soon as in vitro fertilization came around- this is but when the topic to really know, came back, yeah, yeah. and one of the big things is that now um, it is definitely possible. There's um, pre-implantation genetic determination, and yeah. so they they look at the embryos and they.
0: This embryo is going to have blue well, eyes. No,
3: <laughs> right now, they're not they're not doing it for that, but it's that's the the way that they're thinking. But what yeah. they're looking at is especially in families where there are genetic conditions or something. They're saying, okay, well, this one is likely to have this genetic condition, whereas these embryos or not and people can already choose to not implant the ones that would have a genetic condition Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot it's a really big gray area and it's it's really really hard to say Mm -hmm. and as much as we know a lot more now than they did at the turn of the 20th century we're still just starting and we still don't know how all of the genes interact with each other and so if we try to breed out certain things for negative consequences then what else is happening that we're not aware of there and it's the same idea that many of these genetic conditions that a single recessive gene or like a single parent that has it it's actually protective against certain conditions like sickle cell anemia if you only have one copy of the gene you're better able to resist malaria, which is great in many parts of the world. It's just when you get two copies and that's when you get the negative side effects. So if we were to get rid of all of those genes, well then we'd have a lot more people that are now vulnerable to malaria than previously were.
0: It's interesting to think a hundred years from now what parts of this conversation will be seen as uh, uh, morally outrageous.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And then there's also the thought, too, that because all these new technologies come at a price and are typically not covered by healthcare systems, it's going to further widen the divide. So Absolutely. people, the haves, are able to have these genetic ameliorations, if you want to call it that, or just adjustments, whereas the have-nots are are not and are left out. So this is a really big topic. could be like three or four shows on its own. Yes. See, Jim, <laughs> yeah. I told you. Yeah. So sorry I went on forever there, guys. But, um... Original eugenics in the 1870s? Kind of ridiculous. And by kind of ridiculous, I mean very. New ideas of eugenics? Lots of questions to be asked.
0: (laughs) So when people think about racist pseudosciences, they're liable to think about the big historical examples that we've covered, like eugenics programs or phrenology, what have you. But sadly, this topic, uh, as you may have guessed or may have experienced, is not confined to history. The rest of this episode will be dedicated to an overview of modern scientific racism and uh, the recent arguments for human biodiversity.
1: So hold on, it's going to be another couple of hours.
0: (laughs) The phrase human biodiversity may sound non-controversial, I mean, on its face, (laughs) it's just the idea that human beings are biologically diverse. That simply means that some humans are different than other humans, right? That's true in the trivial sense, people come in many different sizes and shapes and colors and configurations. But in practice, advocates for the idea of human biodiversity are simply race realists. Uh, They're much more interested in categorizing people by perceived racial heritage than in any true scientific investigation of humanity. HBD agitators reject the idea of the blank slate, seeing the existing socioeconomic stratification in our society through the lens of genetic determinism, rather than that of culture or differences in opportunity. To quote one blogger who writes under the name education realist... (laughs) Oh... Mean differences in group IQs are the most likely explanation for the academic achievement gap in racial and socioeconomic status groups. HBD advocates like to label their critics creationists for endorsing, as they see it, this blank slate perspective, despite the fact that their critics are frequently scientists working in the fields of biology or anthropology. Uh, As PZ Myers points out, the whole blank slate nature versus nurture dichotomy is nonsense. He says, quote, Biology affects everything human, and everything human is affected by the environment. But wouldn't it be awfully convenient for us white folks if it turned out that we were genetically predisposed to perform better in school, land better jobs, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and succeed? It isn't our fault, after all, that we're naturally predisposed to do well. We wouldn't have to worry about uncomfortable things like the legacy of colonialism and white supremacy, institutional racism, conscious and unconscious biases, cycles of poverty, or any other damn thing. We wouldn't have to feel guilty about our success. Wouldn't that be awfully comfortable? And in today's atmosphere of stifling political correctness, wouldn't a maverick willing to speak such uncomfortable truths be a brave hero worthy of praise? Well, no, of course not. For fuck's sake. Sorry, I've been reading a lot of racist trash over the last couple of days, and I find it deeply upsetting. That sort of selfish, lazy thinking is not only morally outrageous, but it's unsupported by the weight of the evidence and unbecoming anyone who claims to think scientifically. Ideas that flatter us, that play into our biases, should be subject to greater scrutiny. It's our duty to recognize uncomfortable truths and to be extra skeptical of ideas that play toward our own petty biases and tell us we have nothing to worry about. We got where we are because we deserve it, and the problems those people have aren't our fault. Are you folks familiar with the uh, term dog whistle, uh, as it's used in politics, that is? Yeah. Yep. So, uh, for our listeners, a dog whistle is... (laughs) Like, a literal dog whistle is a, a whistle that's audible only to a dog and can't be heard by humans. In politics... Dog whistling is a way of playing to your base without outsiders necessarily knowing what you mean. It, it describes coded language that might sound innocuous to a bystander, but to the speaker's audience, the hidden meaning is clear. And it's generally pretty awful, which is why the speaker doesn't say it plainly. Uh, because of the coded language, though, the statement is easier to defend uh, against political opponents. Well, that, that's not what I said. You're misinterpreting my, my words. So when a Republican says that there are four traditional family values, we know that that means some combination of no gay marriage and maybe abstinence-only sex education or something. That's a dog whistle. When an author says that Idris Elba is too street to play <laughs> James Bond, we might guess that maybe what he's really saying is that Idris Elba is too black. Popular claims about human biodiversity and the new alt-right make use of these dog whistle tactics. Curtis Yarvin, who I'll talk about a little later, does this quite a bit. He'll make a nebulous, hypothetically defensible claim, like, it is statistically unlikely that intelligence is distributed evenly among races, and then leave it to you to infer the racist specifics. In this case, white people are considerably smarter on average than people of color. I mean, why else would we make up 96% of Fortune 500 CEOs? (laughs) <laughs> when called on this racism, he can always fall back on, well, I didn't really say that. You're putting words in my mouth. Some of my best friends are biodiverse. <laughs> uh, there's actually a, a great new podcast uh, called Politically Reactive that's hosted by uh, W. Kamau Bell and Harry Kondabalu that is coming out weekly now. And their, their first episode, uh, which just came out last week, was about dog whistle politics. So I'd encourage all of our listeners to, uh, to give it a listen. It's, it's really good so far. Human biodiversity arguments are hardly new. They were old 20 years ago, when Herrnstein and Murray published The Bell Curve, arguing that academic and socioeconomic differences between African Americans and whites were largely a result of differences in IQ, rather than the other way around. New justifications for racism are rarely actually novel. The language may change to better suit the audience, or to use the newest scientific jargon, or to reflect current stereotypes, but nothing of substance seems to change. Following the book's publication, both the American Anthropological Association and the American Psychological Association were highly critical of the bell curve. One of the most prominent outspoken proponents of scientific racism today is Satoshi Kanazawa. Kanazawa is an evolutionary psychologist, a field that as a whole is subject to a fair amount of criticism, working for the London School of Economics, and he has published extensively on the subject of race, and has faced considerable criticism for his contention Uh, among others, that black women are objectively less attractive than white women, and that the state of war, poverty, and disease in Africa is a result of Africans having lower IQ. He has also contended, uh, by the way, that the American wars in the Middle East are unsuccessful because they don't hate their enemies enough. So, a uh, pleasant fellow all round, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, 68 of his fellow evolutionary psychologists issued an open letter in 2011 distancing themselves from his views, writing, quote, "...the principle of applying evolutionary theory to the study of human psychology and behavior is sound, and there is a great deal of high-quality, nuanced, culturally sensitive evolutionary research ongoing in the UK and elsewhere today." although some evolutionary biologists might disagree with their statements. Um, another letter was uh, published in Times Higher Education in response defending Kanazawa's work, signed by 23 scientists. Although Kanazawa himself has admitted to making several errors in the statistical analyses present in his papers, he stands by his conclusions, maintaining that his work is subject to censorship on the basis that it is not politically correct.
2: <laughs>
0: pointing out that his research also shows that Asian men are less attractive. Presumably his argument, I guess, is that he can't be racist because he doesn't think he's particularly handsome either.
1: <laughs> uh. Yeah, I screwed up the math, but my conclusions are still totally valid. Guys. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: When I read that he contends that uh, women of certain races are objectively less attractive, I was <laughs> like, how the... What, what, what does objective attractiveness mean? What are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, it it turns out that in his case, uh, he was just uh, having a bunch of people rate the attractiveness of different faces, and then he just took a common factor, and he's like, ah, let's just call that objective.
1: Yeah, and there's no other social factors that could possibly have influenced any of those people. Right. Right. Yep.
0: Probably more influential today than Satoshi Kanazawa is Nicholas Wade. In his 2014 book, A Troublesome Inheritance, Wade, a New York Times science columnist, argued that modern genetics demonstrates that the three major races, as he calls them, Africans, Caucasians, and East Asians, I don't know where everybody else fits in, uh, are sufficiently divergent as to be genetically distinct, effectively making them all subspecies of human. And these genetic differences are the root cause of the geopolitical ascendancy of the West.
3: So, Ashlyn, you were totally wrong in your segment. Right,
0: yeah. In a highly critical review of the book, fellow Times columnist David Dobbs notes, quote, "...over the past 150 years, various white Western scientists and writers have repeatedly offered biological explanations for Caucasian superiority." They have repeatedly failed, because, as historian Deirdre McCloskey noted, none ever mounted a credible quantitative argument. Dobbs goes on to note that while it's non-controversial that certain morphological traits are distinctive of certain populations, using the example of lighter skin in Europe as a means of maximizing absorption of sunlight, it has not been established that different human populations have genetically selected for distinct behaviors. Quoting from Dobbs' review, because this is the heart of his argument, and because social behavior is far more complex than, say, skin color, it seems fair to ask that his evidence clear a high bar. A Troublesome Inheritance argues that Caucasians evolved to embrace the rule of law, which led to increasingly open societies, a flourishing marketplace of ideas. Quoting again from Dobbs' review, Europe's rules-based, trade-oriented culture selected for gene variants generating trusting and productive social behavior, and these genes, in turn, made the culture more trusting and rewarding of hard work. Wade goes on to argue that East Asians, meanwhile, were genetically predisposed to rigid discipline that embraced the ultimate authority of the state, while Africans evolved in ways that reinforced more insular, tribal allegiances.
1: That's so, like, navel-gazy, and look how great I am. Yeah. It's so icky. You
0: know, <laughs> when it plays into a narrative that places you at the center of that narrative, I mean... It feels good. Yeah, yeah, it feels good. And
3: it's just easy. It's, it's comfortable. so easy to just keep rolling with it.
0: Yeah, you know, you don't have to worry about your nice house and your nice car and the fact that you make good living, yeah. you know, because... No, I feel
1: guilty about yeah, it. Yeah, it's
0: not your fault. So, again, quoting from Dobbs, Wade runs into much trouble making this argument. He indulges in circular logic. He tells just-so stories. While warning us to avoid filtering science through politics, he draws heavily from conservative historians who minimize the roles played by political power, geographic advantage, momentum, disease, and dumb luck. Conveniently, this leaves more historical questions for genetics to answer. If Wade could point to genes that give races distinctive social behaviors, we might overlook such shortcomings. But he cannot. He tries. He tells, for instance, of specific gene variants that reputedly create less trust and more violence in African-Americans, and, he says, explain their resistance to modern economic institutions and practices. (laughs) Alas, the scientific literature he draws on is so uneven and disputed that many geneticists dismiss it outright. Wade also cites a 2008 paper that analyzed the genomes of almost a thousand people from 51 populations around the globe. That paper found that people from different regions do indeed tend to have distinctive genomes, but the study mentions nothing about race. It merely establishes that many of the slight differences between human genomes cluster by geography at many scales, including continents, and that genomes from any given location will most likely be similar, just as two people from a particular place will most likely speak with similar accents. Second, and far more serious, the paper's authors specifically state that while selection may sometimes create genetic differences between populations, they saw little evidence that selection shaped the small genetic differences they found. In fact, they say the differences can largely be explained by random drift—arbitrary changes in genes having little to no effect on people's biology or behavior. All this directly contradicts Wade's argument, yet he baldly claims the study is support. And he does this sort of thing repeatedly. He constantly gathers up long shots, speculations, and spurious claims, then declares that they add up to substantiate his case.
2: Ew. Did he, like, just read the abstract and thought that nobody would read the entire study? Yeah, pretty much.
0: (laughs) I'll link to the whole review of this book in the show notes, of course, because it's worth a read. In fact, the following month, uh, the New York Times book review published a letter to the editor signed by more than 140 scientists who study genetic variation, which I will read. (laughs) To the editor... As scientists dedicated to studying genetic variation, we thank David Dobbs for his review of Nicholas Wade's A Troublesome Inheritance, Genes, Race, and Human History, July 13th, and for his description of Wade's misappropriation of research from our field to support arguments about differences among human societies. As discussed by Dobbs and many others, Wade juxtaposes an incomplete and inaccurate account of our research on human genetic differences with speculation that recent natural selection has led to worldwide differences in IQ test results, political institutions, and economic development. We reject Wade's implication that our findings substantiate his guesswork. They do not. We are in full agreement that there is no support from the field of population genetics for Wade's conjectures." There are so, so many variables that can account for differences in culture, socioeconomic status, and academic performance. Assuming that genetics is the culprit when it is impossible to control for any of these variables is sheer pseudoscience. Noah Smith points out that these explanations may seem convincing at first glance, but they suffer from what's called statistical overfitting. He says, quote, here's how academic racism generally works. Suppose you have two groups that have an observable difference. For example, suppose you note that Hungary has a higher per capita income than Romania. Now you have a data point. To explain that data point, you come up with a theory. The Hungarian race is more industrious than the Romanian race. But suppose you notice that Romanians generally do better at gymnastics than Hungarians. To explain that second data point, you come up with a new piece of theory—the Romanian race must have some genes for gymnastics that the Hungarian race lacks. (laughs) You keep doing this. Anytime you see different average outcomes between two different groups, you can assume that there is a genetic basis for the difference. You can tell just-so stories to back up each new assumption. For example, you might talk about how Hungarians are descended from steppe nomads who had to be industrious to survive, etc., etc., Read an academic racist blog like Steve Saylor's, and you'll very quickly see that this kind of thinking is pervasive and rampant. There's just one little problem with this strategy. Each new assumption you make adds a new parameter to your model. You're overfitting the data, building a theory that can explain everything but predict nothing.
1: Oh, that last sentence really hits me hard. And the, oh God, that's Mm -hmm. what so many
2: people do. You and
0: your science heart. (laughs) And as a software developer who's worked on neural networks and and time series analysis, overfitting is a major problem that you Mm -hmm. have to look out for. You know, you can build a model that can predict your training data set with like 98% accuracy. But then, you know, you try to predict a new data set that your model has never seen, And you just get garbage, because you've created a model that just overfits. The neo-reactionary alt-right movement that sometimes goes by the absurd name The Dark Enlightenment (laughs) is rather fond of human biodiversity arguments, as are a distressing number of my fellow software developers. Uh, There was a dust-up in development circles earlier this year when it was announced that Curtis Yarvin, one of the most prominent figures in the neo reactionary movement, was going to be speaking at LambdaConf, which is a programming conference in Colorado that focuses on functional programming. Yarvin, who writes under the name Menchus Moldbug, is a rather unpleasant sort of fellow. His views, including the idea that, quote, white people are genetically endowed with higher IQ than black people, are widely viewed as supportive of slavery. And in addition to being, A, horrifying, and B, convenient for Yarvin as a white dude, these views are also, as we've previously discussed, empirically unsupportable. <laughs> after his well, that's invi- not important, though. Yeah. <laughs>
3: No, no, no. Let's just dismiss all those other things and back to just genetics. Like begets like, guys.
0: (laughs) After his invitation to speak at Strange Loop in 2015 was rescinded following a deluge of complaints, there was some expectation in the software development community that LambdaConf might follow suit and remove him from their speakers list. Mm-hmm. But the conference's organizer announced that since he was speaking only about functional programming and not about his views on race, it would be inappropriate to remove him from the conference for political reasons. Oh, They were a big tent, you see. <laughs> hmm. LambdaConf's refusal to remove Yarvin resulted in the withdrawal of five speakers along with several sponsors and the cancellation of 2 subconferences that were to be held in conjunction with Lambda Conf.
2: I hope it was worth it, dudes. Yeah, no yeah. kidding.
0: <laughs> yeah. We need to be pushing back against this bullshit in our own communities. Yeah. That's very important. So that's human biodiversity. It's race realism. It's the same warmed-over... Pseudoscientific, racist nonsense that we've been hearing in some form or another for the past 150, 200 years. And there's nothing to it. Well, I guess that's the end of this topic. Jeez, we've been rambling on for a long time. Before we go, I just want to note that we haven't had any new iTunes reviews in several months. And the best way for us to grow our listener base is for our listeners to leave us positive reviews, because that increases our chances of being featured in the iTunes store. This podcast is a lot of work. Let's be honest, it should be less work, but I'm obsessive about my research and incapable of paring down my segments, and that's not your fault. Uh, But either way, this podcast is a lot of work, and we don't make any money from it. If you we find make it, negative money yeah we make negative money. <laughs> <laughs> if you find it valuable, entertaining, informative, boring enough to make for a great insomnia cure or worthwhile in any other way that I can't think of at the moment, the best way to show your appreciation and to convince us that we should keep making the show uh, is to write a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. I- I'd say Google Play as well, but they don't actually seem to have a reviews section yet, <laughs> which, which is kind of astonishing. <laughs> but they're, uh, they're new to this game. Maybe they'll figure it out. You can also click on the donate link on our website if you really wanted to to help pay hosting costs, but reviews are probably even more important. So, thanks. Ashlyn, what are we talking about next month?
1: So next month, we're going to do a listener-suggested topic. Uh, so this is your reminder that we do like hearing what you want us to talk about, and if you submit one and we find it interesting, we might do it. <laughs> so no guarantees at all. But uh, next month we're going to be talking about different kinds of natural insect repellents and uh, their various efficacies.
0: Cool. Can't wait.
1: It'll be slightly lighter than this month. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about, I don't know, iridology or something in the near future. Maybe that'll be my next topic. I don't know. Jeez. this, this was it makes this, you less angry. This was a heavy one, guys.
2: Yeah. But
1: worth talking about.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, and uh, thanks for joining me tonight, folks.
2: Have a good night, everybody. Cheers. Mm -hmm.
0: Good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman.
1: I'm gonna pour in my tea
2: right
0: now. Just a second. La, 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 la. How fortunate we are to live in a time when we can create a career aligned with our passion. A question mark exclamation point. Uh, bang, You know, I wish it were an actual bang. That's a wonderful symbol. It is second only to the percantation point. Just as my... an
1: aside to an aside, um, <laughs> I I use the uh, autocomplete feature in my phone because you can actually program it to say, if I type this, replace it with this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if I do a question mark exclamation point, it just replaces it with an bang. Uh, I did that too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Twinsies. So, yeah. don't everyone, your beard.
0: everyone should do that. As, as Kira would say, we're twinners!
2: Aww. <laughs> Has okay. she read Stephen King? <laughs> Lord, I hope not. <laughs> so let's backtrack the asides. <laughs> and underneath tune, we have order and calculation. Is
0: that order and chaos? Yes. Is there a lawful good part of the brain? Notice <laughs> how I'm
2: ignoring Jim. I'm
0: chaotic neutral.
2: No, you're not. <laughs> You are lawful good, just deal with it.
0: Yeah, I'm lawful good that aspires to chaotic good, but just can't quite manage it.
1: (laughs) I'm impatient for the sex. (laughs) Later,
0: honey.
2: (laughs) So destructiveness is wrapped around your ear. There you go, Jem. Okay. You gotta work on your destructiveness around the ear for chaotic. You know, I'm touching the back the nape of my neck, sort of just above it. That's where you find conjugal love. Ooh. <laughs>
0: <Good and thoughts. laughs> Stop rubbing each other while we're recording a podcast.
2: No, it has nothing to do with Jackie Stallone and rumpology. So, or, or Dark and Rawl
0: and looking at entrails. Oh, God. God, I hate those books. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Totally valid. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, they used uh, phrenol- phrenological. Phrenological? Fr- 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 phrenological. Phrenological? Phrenological.
2: <laughs> oh my god.
0: <laughs> they used phrenological. whatever. They used phrenological. <laughs> who cares? It's made up anyway. How many times are you kidding? <laughs> can, can you finish the sentence, please? <laughs> <laughs> they used phrenological. Uh... So, Laura, tell yes. us all about the lovely science of eugenics. The lovely science? That's, is, that's the a sweet bad science? Way. is that, that, that Eugenics is the one called the sweet science, right? No,
2: that's what leads to the phrenology differences. You're right. Yeah.
0: I was telling Laura the other day that boxing was called the sweet science, and you shouldn't believe me.
2: That seems like such
3: a weird thing. Mm. How are two people beating each other for the entertainment of others? How is that a sweet science? I don't
2: get it. <laughs> Global warming and (laughs) self-destruction. Yay. Good sound bite. And now the weather.
3: (laughs) This is what I was about to say, and then I thought it would get into some weird, like, kind of incest thing, so I didn't say it, and then here we are. (laughs) (laughs) L-U-E,
0: folks. (laughs) It's putting it into practice that is horrible and bad. Counterpoint. It did result in Keith Hamilton Cobb. I have no idea who that is. It's a reference to uh Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. Oh god. Oh god, that's a sexy man. Did
3: you interrupt Laura? Did for you that? really My face is melting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my face is literally
2: melting.
3: Oh Mr. My segment's so long, I'm talking too much. Interrupt somebody else to go on another aside.
0: You you look at this picture of Keith Hamilton. Oh Cobb, my god,
3: Jeff, stop!
0: <laughs> and you tell me that You're he's so not worth for. interrupting a segment for.
3: You're looking at it. It could have waited, is all I'm saying. All right,
0: we'll look at that together afterwards.
3: (laughs) We'll just just gaze at it. (laughs) (laughs) I hope he's not listening to this podcast and going, these guys are weird. (laughs) Big fan. (sighs) Okay, can I get on with my super serious and horrible topic, please?
0: Trying to to introduce a little bit of levity into this eugenics discussion, I'm sorry. First, more HBD, HDB, HBD agitators. The Romanian, the Romanian, the Romanian race.
2: I've never seen Jen the actual color of his beard before. <laughs>